I'm doing today, and then I'm gone for two weeks, then I return. I'm taking a small writing retreat, very short, and then I have no plans to be absent until um, after Easter. So we'll do a little solid run here and see if we can make a little progress there. Okay. Um, the last class we gave, which was quite a long time ago, but it was I got halfway through number 268, but I covered the first part of it so thoroughly that there's no point in repeating it. This is about Kriya. The first line was, Master always placed great emphasis on the importance of practicing Kriya Yoga. And then Swamiji recorded some comments, and I, read the, I, I commented on the first two paragraphs before. And then he continues, When you clean your room, as Master said, it looks tidy. Afterward, it looks tidy afterward for a few days. But after those few days, the dust settles again. So it is with outer spiritual practices. The aid they give us is only temporary. Once you've tasted inner bliss, however, and immersed yourself in it, you know there isn't anything else that matters. I know all those who don't, I know all those who don't practice Kriya, he added, looking penetratingly at Clifford. He said, you do not practice much, do you? That's true, sir, Clifford confessed. You see, just a flash I got, you must practice it instead of talking so much and listening to flattering words. So he's taking Clifford to task for more than just not doing Kriya. Sit down every chance you get and do a few Kriyas. To all of us then, he said, Kriya contains everything you need. Practice it faithfully night and day. I, uh, Walter Kriyananda, who was always seeking clarification for a broader audience, asked him, is it safe for people to practice Kriya a great deal? He had told us that one ought in the beginning to practice only a few Kriyas at a time. Of course it is safe, he replied forcefully. You must get out of your mind the thought that it is not. The thing is, however, that one shouldn't do so many that his concentration wanes. It is better to do even a few Kriyas concentratedly than many Kriyas automatically. There's a line, uh, it's a quotation, I believe, from Adi Shankaracharya, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's in the autobiography, where Master says that outer ritual will not enable you to overcome delusion because outer ritual is not the opposite of delusion, which I thought was, I've always sort of loved that picture, that, that uh, parallel. You know, when, when all of this comment about Kriya and so on, Master also has in his mind... Um, the practice of the Catholic Mass and the practice of all the pujas in India, where he's not, he's not thinking about um, services where people come together for inner concentration, the kind of outer activities that we have is what I mean. He's thinking of the um, traditions that have grown up in so many re, uh, re, uh, religions where, the, where the, the rituals itself are said to have power. I don't really know what to think about a lot of what goes on in Hinduism where you have a, you pay a priest to do a hundred thousand of such a, such a mantra to you and for you. And I mean, friends of mine who are very sincere, they'll, they'll follow that sort of thing. So-and-so was very concerned about this man who was having a lot of difficulty in his life, so he hired the pujari and they did a hundred thousand of this particular mantra and then they invited him up for a special ceremony which I happened to be part of at the end. And... I mean, there was a tremendous amount of 
believe that all of that would really positively affect his consciousness. And you can't say that it wouldn't. It would depend on the power of the pujari, I think, whether or not he's actually able to channel a force of blessing or whether it's merely a ritual. But it's not the opposite of delusion. Delusion is a a vibration of your own consciousness that allows you, that, that compels you to perceive reality in a certain way. I've been very impressed over many years of working with people and working with myself how persuaded we are of our world view. I don't know how else to put it. I've had long conversations with people about circumstances, I mean many times over many years, over the circumstances they're dealing with, over what happened to them, of how people treated them, of the effort they made, of how Nobody appreciated their efforts, how they, you know, everything they did would have worked if so-and-so hadn't thwarted it. I mean, just whatever. I'm just giving you a picture. Sometimes an entirely different script could be written and has been written by other people who were also there who just had a whole different perception of, of what the cause and effect was and, and what people were actually doing. Um... Swamiji, I was thinking about this this morning. He was... um, You have that little example there of Master looking at Clifford and saying, you know, you should talk less and do more Kriyas and you don't really do many Kriyas. And I have examples of Swami Kriyananda being quite direct. Um, he He was fairly direct with me, more so than with some people, but I was also delicate and he knew it. So he wasn't harsh with me ever. Um... But he was, he recognized, he had a tremendous sense that people cannot perceive a reality that they cannot perceive. And merely to try to persuade somebody that something is true, even to force them to see the reason of what's true, you know, the inevitable, inescapable logic of what's true, is not the same as actually shifting your consciousness and really seeing a new reality. Um, so Swamiji was always very, he wanted people to feel, the most important thing was that people not lose hope and that people not lose momentum, that they not lose confidence in themselves. Um, that doesn't mean that truth could ne- hard, hard truths could, could never be told. But he wasn't as concerned for getting all the facts straight because the facts of a situation very largely depend on what you're capable of seeing. Even if you're totally at fault or totally inept or, you know, or totally made total mistakes, if you, if you don't perceive it, it just isn't a reality for you. And it's, it's, a very, it's, a very, it's a very tricky business. So the opposite of delusion is not acting out all these careful rules and things. The opposite of delusion is to actually shift your perception of reality so that when you look at it, it's less clouded by your ego attachment to circumstances being a certain way. And the only way you can do that is by fundamentally breaking that strong necessity to be identified and okay with your separate ego self. And after you work with it for a long time, not only do you treat others differently, but you just treat yourself differently. Because you realize there's no 
There's no bullying yourself into having a different state of consciousness, which is the only way I can think about it. I remember when I, and I mean, this this went on with me for longer than I like to admit. Some of you will remember. But I remember very early on when I was giving Sunday services, a, a very good friend of mine suggested, she said something slightly critical about what I was doing and then suggested I listen to my service. So we, we made little cassettes then, so I listened to the recording and I could only listen to a few minutes because she was so annoying. She was just telling everybody what they were supposed to be doing. And at first I sort of didn't want to hear her, meaning me, talk. And then I realized that if I didn't want to hear her, I bet nobody else was enjoying it either because it was all based on this mistaken idea of mine at the time that all I had to do was push myself and that my consciousness would change. But that wasn't so. I mean, in fact, that very idea that I could bully myself into changing my consciousness was the real problem. You just have to, to be who you are. But you see, the, the good news is we actually have a method. And that method is this business of pulling the, the inner energy through those chakras consistently enough with the breath that the chakras gradually are transformed. And as the chakras transform, the, the flow of our energy, it, it simply flows different. The river of our consciousness follows a different channel. And when it follows a different channel, you just think, wow, how could I ever have missed that? How could I have not known that? Um, and so that's, you know, that's why they say it doesn't mean you don't have to understand yourself, face yourself, know your motivations, introspect, um, discipline yourself. All of that stuff is still completely true. Um, but underneath that, you have to be doing something. It helps to be doing something that is fundamentally changing your ability to perceive reality. And that's what Kriya is. That's why... Um, he says, you know, every chance you get, do a few Kriyas. Because every chance you get to lift your inner energy will just be, I don't know, one more erg toward freedom and one less erg in delusion. If there, is that what you call the, the energy unit or whatever it's called like that? But he also says, when he says to Clifford, not only could he see his consciousness in his eyes, because that's all Master's saying. When Master says just a flash, he can look at his consciousness and tell He's known Clifford for many incarnations, whoever Clifford was. He's known him for this lifetime. He can just look at him and tell whether his eyes are calm, whether his gaze is inward. And he, Swami used to say, he didn't say it often, but he said, you know, in just a glance, I can tell. But he would, he would see the vibration. Um, it, it seems remarkable to us that he would be able to do that, that Master could do it or that Swami could do it. But it isn't really, when you really think about it, Think how, uh, I mean, it's the life force. It's, it's right in your eyes. And we're so accustomed to seeing things physically, we tend to see a physical body and a physical pair of eyes. But Swamiji saw everything in terms of vibrations of energy. So what he could see at a glance or feel at a glance was just the vibration of energy. And the vibration of energy would communicate um, immediately, sort of, where on the spectrum you were. See, implied in our own minds with that is judgment. And people, it makes them very nervous to think that. Swami's not with us anymore to frighten people. But we can't help but think 
if perception equals judgment, which is, of course, indicates what our, where our perception is, because Swami's perception never equaled judgment. It just really told him how to respond. You know, he would just see where the energy was, and his thought would be, how can I move it forward? And that was why he was also much less concerned with who did what to whom, and getting you to face up to your shortcomings and admit your faults. He just wanted to just keep the energy going forward. And the only time he would encourage that would be when it was time, and such a revelation would be helpful, but then it would be helpful for you to go forward. Because most of the time, when people have a stern confrontation with their limitations, it weakens them rather than strengthens them. It's an egoic idea that we sort of beat each other and ourselves up, but it's not the soul's progress. The soul's progress is this sudden realization that doesn't make any difference at all. That it's, what, what really frees me is the fact that I recognize suddenly that I'm a child of God. And that's, that, then everything is lifted. That's the perception that changes. I, I've, I've enjoyed practicing being a Jivan Mukta in this sense, where the, I'm, I've enjoyed one of the practices Swami recommended for a Jivan Mukta, let me put it accurately, where he talked about how you have to recognize that all of your previous incarnations, it was just God who became those, those creatures, those personalities, those life forms. That it was really never, there was never a separate individuality ever that was just God acting in those different ways. And he would hold up, you know, the worst things that you can imagine that you might have done. It was still just the flow, the same divine flow acting out. It, just like, like a puppet or like a, the river assuming a form and then that form being dissolved. And then assuming another form and that form being dissolved. And from the outside it looks like something has really been formed that has an independent life. But if you realize it's just the river flowing into a container that looks like that and then the river, river withdrawing, it's so um, startlingly impersonal and leaves you so little... Um, area for angst compared to all of the self-concern that normally characterizes us. You know, it's just fun. It's just fun to see how far you can go toward freedom. Even if you bounce back a little bit or a lot, you at least sort of begin to see what the point of all of these things is. Um, to all of us, Master said, Kriya contains everything you need. And this is what he meant. If you, Kriya opens the possibility of dissolving karma and shifting consciousness, and that's everything you need. It's not the only way to do that, but it is, in itself, it will do that. But of course, true Kriya involves discipleship and devotion. So it's not like you can take it with your ego and do it with your will and make it happen, because that's not really Kriya, that's just breathing. True Kriya uh, puts you in connection with that higher reality, and then that's ultimately what frees you, attracts the grace. So he asked, is it safe for people to do Kriya? Of course it's safe, Master replied forcefully. You know, there's a lot of, um, especially at the time when this was all happening, yoga was so little known. And uh, Master wanted, you know, you should get that thought out of your mind. He was really trying to eliminate it completely. 
The thing is, though, one shouldn't do so many that his concentration wavers. And that's, that is 100% the practice of Kriya, which is, are you paying attention or not? You know, I was talking earlier just about breathing because you can hear in my voice that my uh, upper self is a little bit compromised. But you can, you can do a Kriya, which is an inhalation and an exhalation, because we're inhaling and exhaling all the time. So it's like no great accomplishment to do an inhalation and an exhalation, even in a Kriya method, if it is little more than an inhalation and an exhalation. If it isn't a conscious um, offering of who you are and all that egoic separateness into the light of spirit, then it's not really a Kriya. And so it's much more important to do even a handful of real Kriyas than it is to do a large number of inhalations and exhalations. And uh, there's the, the story that Swami put in uh, his in the path. Marina Lini Mata, who recently died, who was the second, the president of SR for a few years after Daya Mata. She came to Mount Washington with her mother when she was 13. And actually her whole life with Master was like from the age of 13 to 19. She was only with him for a short number of years, and it was her teenage years. He, he, he uh, gave her a great deal of energy and attention. Uh, but nonetheless, she was still a teenager through that time. She was still going to high school for much of it. And uh, one morning she came down to breakfast, because they all lived in a communal way, uh, an ashram way. And uh, Master said to her, you didn't meditate this morning. And rather petulantly as a teenager, she said, Master, I meditated a whole hour. And Master said, you should have meditated only half an hour. He said, you did less actual meditation in your one hour than you normally do in your 30 minutes. Which is just a, it's a really flat statement. Because it's not mechanical. It's not an outer ritual. See, that's the, see, that's the exact point. Kriya is not an outer ritual. Do 100,000 mantras and it's done. No, it isn't at all. It's, it's how deeply we are offering ourselves with devotion into the light. And if we're doing Kriya properly, what is there to be afraid of, he also says. How can you offer yourself into the light too much? You know? And also, whatever opening of the spirit that you create by your Kriya practice, you're simultaneously creating the proper magnetic field in order to... Um, face and resolve, if that is also part of what's happening, or to um, be guided effectively through whatever increased awareness it brings with it. Okay? Is that all clear? Is there any questions or thoughts? These are very important points. Swami puts this all in here because, of course, Kriya is such an important practice, and these were... these were. Um, I mean, there's a tremendous amount now available about Kriya through Ananda, because we've devoted ourselves they, others, have created such a magnificent Kriya ministry. Um, But there's a great deal to understand because it's really the heart, the center point of our whole spiritual path. And and everything that applies to every aspect of our path still applies. There's, There's no shortcuts to any of this. 269. Bernard told me he'd asked the Master the following question once. You've said people shouldn't increase the number of Kriyas they practice daily, 
without first obtaining official permission. What if someone lives far away or for some other reason can't get his kriyas checked and can't even write to Mount Washington for permission to increase them? Of course, that's a question that has no application anymore because of the communication system. Um, You can get on Skype and have your kriyas checked. It's just not hard to do now. The master, Bernard said, gave this response. If they are sincere and feel the need, they will do more kriyas anyway which is, is an important answer. There was a man uh, who started a, a group for Ananda at a certain point, and he, he gradually placed himself in a position of importance, and he declared himself lifetime spiritual director of his Ananda group. This was back in the early 80s, which I felt was going a little far. And it all got a little complicated, and finally Swami had a meeting with everyone involved. And... Uh, the man had taken things a little far, and there were a lot of attitude corrections he could have uh, he could have taken if he'd chosen to. Uh, but after it was all over in the discussion, which was quite cordial, and the man left, Swami turned to me and he said, I put this in my book, he said, no one with any spunk is just going to sit around waiting to get instruction from headquarters. <laughs> he said, <laughs> you know, it's just people who have energy will have also the the inner sense of confidence to know that they don't have to get permission to tie their shoes. They just know what's correct. Now, of course, that's one of those two-edged swords. I can't tell you how many people have justified absolute folly on the basis of quoting things like that (laughs) from Swami and Master, that, you know, that they have spunk and they have gumption in there. So it's it's something that just has to be thought through. And the the balance point between respect for authority and confidence in your own perception is the dividing line between delusion and and uh, not delusion. And it's there's no there's no bright line and there's no clear cut route. There just isn't, because sometimes you should respect and listen to what other people say to you, and sometimes you should quietly go your own way, regardless of what other people tell you. Sometimes you should just take the initiative and sometimes you should just slow down and work a little cooperatively. And it's all about consciousness. Ananda's not simple. It's never been simple. And the same instructions for different people. I mean, different instructions for different people. It's very complicated. Any thoughts or comments on that? But it's nice to have Master's encouragement for true self-realization rather than institutionalism, which is what he's really responding to. Institutionalism. I can feel my voice fading. Number 270. Of the kundalini force, of the kundalini force, the energy that is locked at the base of the spine, the master said one day, when one thinks good thoughts, the kundalini automatically starts moving upward. When one thinks evil thoughts, it moves downward. When one hates others or has wrong thoughts about them, it moves down. And when one loves others or thinks kindly about them, it moves up. Kundalini is not awakened by yoga techniques alone. This is a little bit of what I was saying about the Kriya. So this is part of why 
our particular path is so interesting. I mean, the path of self-realization as Master taught it. It's also why uh, a lot of phenomenal things don't happen to us and often there aren't a lot of dramatic events on, on our particular path of self-realization. People, we don't have big sweeping moments of total transformation. It's more rather you hardly even notice that anything is happening. It's just that gradually over time you look back and you realize that everything about your life is different. I was talking to some old friends in the last few days and just we were talking about our our particular colony here and just having watched it for so many years now you know we're not um, we're not a big popular movement we have we had the, just had these wonderful Christmas and New Year's Eve programs and if a hundred people come or 125 150 is a gigantic crowd for us you know usually it's a hundred or less and we have room in this hall for many more than that. And when Swami Kriyananda would come, we would fill it. And on other occasions, occasionally we do come closer to filling it. But even for these, these really spectacular things that we do, we just have a very small number of people. And I, we were having a conversation about whether or not that, that's any indication of success or failure. And my comment was, look at the society we live in right now. I mean, just, just look at the values of our times. And I don't, I'm not even going to say one way or another, but just look how different what we value is from what the mainstream of society values and what people are being told all the time is important to them. It just start from kindergarten on. It's just nobody's being taught what, to value what we're valuing. And it, it's, it's like there's a mass consciousness and we're so far outside of it that it's just almost an impossibility to imagine that we could capture any uh, significant share of, of that awareness. And it's almost, I don't, I don't want to say it's a point of pride, but our teaching shouldn't be at all in tune with what's going on in the culture right now. Because the culture's just not going to God as en masse. Of course, simultaneously, there is this tremendous alternative reaction to the light, and a lot of people are moving toward the light. But even in that sphere, you know, we're just, we're just way out at the edge of it still, and we just simply will be for a really long time. But I had this other, this is unrelated to what's written there, but not entirely. I had this other thought that I, I was actually trying to trace down to the reason for it, um, like Christmas Eve for example, which uh, was just, you know, it just it's transporting. We put this tremendous amount of energy into it. I was saying earlier that every year I spend all of December on Christmas, and at the end of December, I'm not even really sure what I've been doing, but I just know that I've had to devote all of my energy to it. And then we have these wonderful events that are uh, fun and heartwarming and in the end just transport us to another planet, another plane is really the right word. And a hundred or so people come and watch it, 125, if we're lucky, 150. But it's like a, a, an astral reality is created, or, or a higher level even than that, a causal vibration 
that is always here ever after. And that, that people who come six months from now will come to a large extent because of the magnetism that was generated by that all-day meditation this year that just had so much power in it. That kind of power is the real power of the universe, not popularity. Popularity just says, this is what everybody's thinking right now. But the kind of power that we felt that day when we were meditating, which was just over a little more than a week ago, you know, it's just here. And it, it's pulsing out from here. And this is how Jesus' teachings became established in the world. I mean, this is being the Christmas season. It was 300 years before, before Christianity really became a significant force. I mean, there were lots of Christians and they were very dedicated to what they were doing and they were um, preaching the gospel and people's lives were completely changed. But it was still nobody noticed. But because of what they were doing, they were, they were building up the, the magnetism that gradually tipped, tipped in a certain way. And so we're on that same reality, which is also really what goes on within us. You know, the, the individual drama, which is what this last one was about, which is about the kundalini energy. The kundalini is the definition of what I was saying, where your consciousness is shifting. Because the kundalini energy is the, 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 the life force, the spiritual force within us. And the degree to which that kundalini energy is, is trapped in vortices of commitment to matter as the only reality and ego as the primary self-definition, the, the degree to, that, to which that's true per, determines our perception of reality. And the degree to which that energy has been liberated, I mean, I have the, the silliest image of how the, ener the energy works in the chakras, but it, it works for me. You know, uh, the, the UPS trucks drive in and out all the time, and they have the, all their things that are, they have to stop in all these places, and they're pre-committed. I think the energy flowing from the medulla and, you know, through the ear and the pingal and circulating through and circulating through all the chakras it's like it's a delivery system of energy. And all of these little vortices are all the packages that have to be delivered, like this. So the little truck goes through and he just keeps offloading, you know, depending on what, on the, on the, on the karmic commitments that we have made. I have to remain afraid of this. I have to remain attached to this. I have to main, remain ambitious for this. I have to hold this regret. I have to hold this desire. And all of those are vibrations of consciousness, and those vibrations of consciousness require a commitment of our life force. So the energy has to circulate because all of the chakras contribute to our capacity to live on this planet, in this plane of consciousness. We have to, it has to go all the way to the earth chakra in order for us to have a physical body. But what we want is for all that energy to actually be ruled from the spiritual eye. And so that there's no pre-commitments of energy beyond what is necessary for maintaining a life in this world. Swami Kriyananda, Paramhansa Yogananda, they had physical bodies, they had personalities, they had interests, they did all sorts of things, but there were no, there were no vortices. All, all of the energy was run from the spiritual eye. So even when it expressed, no matter what level it expressed, 
it was a, a, a choice of the soul, not a compelling demand of, of, of ego. So the little delivery truck goes through and he has, you know, this whole potential to deliver. Or maybe it's more like the propane ta- tanks being filled. There's this potential energy, but so much of it, by the time the energy circulates through the chakras and comes back to here, there's just a, a, a paltry amount left because so much is busy keeping all those little vortices alive. So each one of those vortices that you can dissolve, that, that saves that much energy to either be focused here or at least directed from this point. And, and so whenever I uh, am inclined to build up or indulge one of those little vortices, I have this picture in my mind very specifically of how it will drain my spiritual potential. You know, and it's, it's graphic enough. It helps if you get, I find it helps if you get a graphic image. Why does this matter? When I was 18, I read this Hatha Yoga book about the perils of dehydration. I'm just talking about not drinking enough water. It was a gross and graphic uh, description of what happens to your body when you don't have enough uh, water, when you don't drink enough water. You know, basically it's like never emptying the vacuum cleaner bag but continuing to vacuum up all the dust or however you want to think about it. It was much grosser than that, but that was the essence of it. It was so graphic that to this day, whenever I realize I haven't drunk water, this sense of panic comes over me because I have such a clear picture in my mind of the horrible consequences of not doing that. I think one of the reasons I mostly enjoy good health is because of that book I read when I was 18. Because <laughs> I just, I, I never become dehydrated. <laughs> or rarely. And when I do, I panic. Okay, wouldn't it be nice to be that way about your spiritual thoughts? You see? You know, we just allow, we pollute ourselves constantly. And, and that's what, that's what Master's saying here. Your kundalini rises every time you have a negative thought towards someone. You think ill of someone. You project something that's bad. Your energy, you, you commit to a vortice of energy that's, that's not guided by the soul that has to then constantly be maintained. It has to be fed and watered with energy that you would otherwise be able to lift in a higher direction. It becomes, then you know, self-discipline, which is always a challenge, is, is not so complicated. Because you just think, why would I, you know, just uh, keep stabbing myself with a sharp object? Because it, it actually begins to feel like that. It, you, you see immediately that, um, you just know immediately that the, the consequences of this are not worth it. And it's, it's just like, I, if, if I do that, I'm going to have to pay for that. And I don't want to pay for that. Just, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. This parent, parenthetically relevant. I, a wise man once said that uh, every minute that you spend not seeking God is a total waste of time. Well, that's another way to say the same thing. Yeah. You can, oh, in other words, even when you're not doing Kriya, you're affecting your, your consciousness. But what Kriya does is that it just, it, it's a very effective tool, but every time you think a kind or an unkind thought, you just ne- there's no holiday from self-realization. It was, it was very interesting, you know, because I, I, I was so just completely obliterated 
with the flu the last week or so, which I haven't, which I rarely experience. Um, it was, it was, it was, it, there's a certain freedom in it that is definitely not the same freedom as the all-day meditation. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. But there's a peacefulness because there's just all your energy is gone. You have no choice. You, there's just, there's no choice at all. And it doesn't, no, no, no thought even arises that you could do anything. And, and I, I enjoy, um, I enjoy subconscious relax, relaxation. I'll put, sort of try to put it like that to a certain extent. But it, it, the reason I'm saying this is Swami Kriyananda never relaxed downward. You know, he, he never enjoyed dullness. He never sought, he never sought release by becoming dull. In fact, dullness, it just, it was, it was repellent to him. You know, and he, 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 he was a, he was not imbalanced, although he drove himself pretty fiercely with his willpower. But he, he never sought out to relax by going subconscious. Let, you know, let's watch six videos in a row. Or, you know, I was just, I slept, and then every so often I would watch an Agatha Christie <laughs> movie on YouTube. And then I would sleep again and have very strange dreams. <laughs> and it all seemed quite very productive to me. It was only as I began to, the fever began to wane that I realized, wow, that was an odd, that was a very odd state of mind. But the main point I'm wanting to say is I, I watched Swami for all those years. He never relaxed down. And even when we were on holiday, it was always dynamic. It was just always a very dynamic. Even when we were quiet, it was always a very up energy. You just never, you never got to lower your energy level with him. Just, it just never got to. He, his, his vibration was always so high that you, you couldn't, you know, just collapse. Vacation with Swamiji was not the way I would vacation on my own at all, ever. I loved it. I, my own inclinations would be to seek a more subconscious relaxation. But when I was prevented from it, I loved it. You know, it's sort of an interesting... But this is, it's similar. It, it's not like going so far as to think hateful thoughts about people, but yes, there's a question on this side. Could you give a few examples of this uplifting relaxation? Very interesting conversation, for example. Conversation with Swamiji, just sitting at the tea table, I'm the tea table, meaning sitting at the table having tea. I mean, you just never knew what the subject would be. Any subject at all. I mean, we had so... I mean, we always had interesting conversation. And if the subject wasn't... It wasn't always serious conversation. But if the subject wasn't deep, it would become humorous. And, you know, there would be uh, puns and somebody would make a witticism off of one thing and then the next person would top it and the next person would top it. And, I mean, I remember Swami saying once, or perhaps I said it, you know, we just never stop until we've driven it absolutely as far as it can go. And that, that would be an example of it. Never was there any unkind conversation. There would sometimes be frank conversation, but always and only with the intention of how can we help. No, no gossip, no... Even if the subject was politics or something like that, it would always be from the most elevated level. 
That, that's, that was what I would mean. And if we'd watch a film or something like that, any kind of a movie or a video, Swami was extremely particular about what movies we would watch, with rare exceptions. Yes? I think there's a reading from Living Wise and Living Well where Swami answers perhaps the question that you're asking. I'm obviously going to paraphrase it. He says, do not relax in a passive way. And he, I think Say it one more time. Do not relax in a passive way. And he thinks... what accident? Passive. What's the first word? Relax. Okay. Oh, relax. Do not relax. Do not relax. I couldn't get that word. Do not relax in a passive way. Got and it. I think he says watching television. I, I, I think the way I understood it always is even a read, reading a book can be relaxing passively or actively depending upon what the book is and how you're reading it. That's exactly right. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I think Jyotish, again, uh, on a different thread, he was giving a satsang with a small group and he was counseling people and he was talking about relaxation and he was talking about how people have to be very conscious of how they relax and mm-hmm. which part of the brain they use. <laughs> uh, like, for example, somebody who's very intellectual, for them, art is the right kind of relaxation. Uh, for somebody who's always engaged, listening to music would be an active kind of relaxation. Uh, so uh, part of it is personal uh, and subjective to each individual. Right. But you will know whether you're being passive or not in exactly. the way you relax. I, always, I think of it also in terms of just simply how much energy, you know, there's just like it, uh, it, how much energy you're putting out. You think about that, how to say that exactly. Because Swami would, we, he would often watch video. He loved to watch these BBC. There was a whole series of BBC um, versions of P.G. Woodhouse that were just marvelously funny particular set of them with a man and woman I can't remember who exactly but they were just hilariously funny and he loved to watch those he would read P.G. Woodhouse out loud sometimes he would read P.G. to himself Woodhouse to himself Um, he would read fiction he he was a reader he was a bookworm by nature in fact at the very end of his life I, I found an email from the last six months or so he said I who have always had a book in my hand he said, I've stopped reading. He was just, it was of the many emails that he wrote saying, uh, hinting essentially, that you know how much he changed. He said, I no longer read. I, I, don't, I don't find any pleasure in reading anymore. And for him that, because he would travel and he'd go to a bookstore and he would read fiction and um, he wouldn't read novels the way I would read novels, which is I would read novels for escapism. But he would, when he would go on a long airplane trip, he'd often buy a novel. And, and read it because he was a writer. He would, but he would never. Whenever he was going to buy a book, a fiction book, he would always read the last few pages to see how it ended. First, he'd stand in the bookstore and he'd read the last few pages, and he would say his actual words. It was really rather poignant. I've had enough sorrow in my life. I'm not going to read a sad story. I want to make sure it ends happy before I buy it. And I said, but sir, doesn't that spoil the, you know, the interest of the book? Oh no, he said. I find it interesting to see how the writer's going to get us there. But he, if it was sad, he just wouldn't buy it. Because he didn't uh, enjoy indulging that kind of emotion. And the movies that he liked, you know, someone else was reminding me, and I'd forgotten, in, in, when we lived in, in, Nevada, in Ananda Village, before we had electricity and before there were videos, which was through all through the 70s, there was one movie theater in town, and, and he would... Often we'd go in, often at odd times, meaning like 
we'd have a, like it in the, on the evening of January 5th, after having gotten up early to meditate and had an all-day of programs, in the evening we'd go to town and go to a movie. And we saw a rather wide variety of movies. We also walked out of a lot of them. But I remember only on one occasion, he liked movies that were noble. If, if there was nobility in the movie, or just, you know, good art, well done. Um, and he liked older movies. You know, in, in the last 25 or 30 years of his life, he rarely saw a modern movie because they were always so uh, vulgar. <laughs> Just in almost every way they were vulgar and he didn't enjoy it. But I remember we saw this one movie that was horrid in that it was, it was I think it was a World War II movie and it was, there was a lot of torture in it, which I am incredibly vulnerable to. I never subject myself to that. And it st- started unfolding to be this just really horrible story and, and vivid. And, uh, I, we, you know, I kept looking over at him because usually he would do, this would be the cycle. You'd look over and you would see he would be sitting like this. He'd be sort of lean back with his arms folded. And then you would hear him go, And then he would ask someone like, you know, do you find this interesting? And we'd say, no. And then we'd all get up and walk out. But I kept looking over to him to rescue me. Because I was just, I mean, I, still can, I can still see the pictures in my mind. It's taken me, now I can actually contemplate it with equanimity. Isn't that interesting? But that movie just terrified me for 35 years. Um, he made us sit through the whole thing. And afterwards, it was just like, he says, sometimes it's very good to subject yourself to something like that and just see if you can remain calm in front of it. I didn't. I can now, though. I can think of it. I don't think I'd ever watch it. But with that one exception, he just, you know, he was careful before we go, and then if it proved bad, we'd just walk out. But still, then it was, otherwise it was entertaining. But Master went to movies, too. It's also, I think it was just a way to stop everything because people were always pulling on him. And it was a way for him to be with us that allowed, I think, I don't know what would what happened. A lot of things were happening that I didn't, wasn't, we weren't able to cognize. So he never dozed off. I never saw him doze off or anything like that, you know, in a movie or anything like that. Does that answer it? Yeah. But he was very, very interactive until the last few years of his life. So every, every situation was an opportunity to teach and inspire. And he, nev- he, he never put down that mantle. And if anybody was anywhere around him who was willing to draw it out of him, he never put it down. If he, if he didn't want to do it, he, he just wasn't there. But if he was present, he was 100% present, and he was 100% committed to giving. And I think that actually is the, is the answer. He was always giving. He never tried not to give. Except on occasion he would say to me, you know, let me finish my lunch, Asha. <laughs> or it's been a long day, maybe we should wait. Sometimes I wasn't always sensitive. Did you have a question, Jan? Did you have a question, Jan? No, okay. All right, let's take a, a short break. And then we'll go back to wherever we were. Okay, just take five minutes or so.
uh, when I was talking about the effect of our Christmas services, our holiday, the, the, our Christmas meditation not being measured at all by the number of physical bodies that there are in the room, but just by the magnetism that's generated. I realize that one of the themes that's, that's come through, and I might try to sharpen it up as I edit this, the book I'm writing now about Swamiji, is that he was engaged in a battle on the causal plane to establish the ideas of self-realization with enough magnetism that individuals seeking truth would be drawn to it. And that the, the real, talking about how out of tune collect we are with what is popular culture is what I would call it. I don't know, I don't know how you say this. The politicians and the entertainment industry, you know, where it's all really happening, not the subculture of which we're a part of or the alternative, I don't know what the words are now. But uh, it's the war on the, of the ideas that are the big issue. Is materialism the answer? Is selfishness the answer? Is there such a thing as an ongoing state of consciousness? These are all ideas. And what ideas one conforms to completely determines one's behavior. The kind of, I mean, one of the jokes that I heard over this season was politicians, the present-day politicians, are the, are the strongest proof of reincarnation that we have now because no one could get that messed up in just one lifetime. <laughs> you know, it's very rude, but it still, it says something. But the, the point is, um, because of the lack of belief in God and continuing consciousness, just pure selfishness and evil has no, there's no brakes on it because there's no consequences. If, you can, if you're clever enough to get away with it, then do it. Whereas what we're saying here about the kundalini being affected by wrong thoughts and recognizing what that means to our consciousness, you know, you're trapped. You can't do it. That's what really keeps you from being, behaving in an undharmic way is that you immediately suffer from it. Or if you, don't, if you know you're not suffering today, you know you're going to suffer tomorrow and it's not going to be worth it to you. So you're very self-disciplined because it's in your self-interest. If there is no ongoing reality, then you just take what you can and hope you get away with it. You gamble. So in other words, it's all about ideas. So Swami was always fighting the war on the, on the causal plane with, with his writing, with his speech, with his response. But we are too. And in Christmas 1994, when he had a, his open heart surgery, December of that year, he had a vision, a powerful vision of the war on the causal plane and that being what we were engaged in and exhorted us to step into it and into it, to, to take what we were doing as a matter of life or death for everyone, not just for our, us personally. So the end point of that is when we actually do the right thing with the right consciousness, whether it's a a beautiful concert or our own personal meditation, we are really uh, participating on the side of light and influencing the destiny of the planet far more than people realize. Just much more than people realize. And we feel that, you know. It's like the amount of fun that we have, divine upliftment is so out of proportion to what we're doing. That's how I feel. I felt that from the beginning of my life at Ananda. It's just like 
when I look objectively at what's going on, there's just, there's nothing to justify the, the, the interior experience of greatness in, in some, but I feel it and I know it's true. I just know it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then every so often, but, but the other thing is, steadily over 40 years for me, I've watched myself, I've watched those who started with me, and I've watched all these other people who've joined the dance at different f- points, you know, just sort of begin to move with the same energy. So you, you really, you feel this ascending cycle of divine power that's just going. And then when death comes to people, as it, as it does, and we've had a number of extraordinary deaths, you know, globally through Ananda. And, and uh, by extraordinary, I mean extraordinarily uplifted. And, and you, then you suddenly, you see the final exam. You see people going into the final exam and you recognize, wow, these are stellar students. Look at that. <laughs> you know, just all of us. Just, and the, you know, the, the most, it has nothing to do with anybody except themselves and God. Or even for I, when I had the experience of writing the Miracles and Answered uh, Prayers book, uh, Loved and Protected, and I, I got to interview all these different people about their experiences, and they were so many different people of so many different experiences and ages and degrees of success or failure in life or, or uh, impressive accomplishment or total lack of it. But everybody's eyes had that same look in them. Completely changed me to write that book. I just really, I began to see everybody very differently because I saw that the only drama that really mattered is the soul in God. And everything else is really so superficial. And that drama is entirely within our, our decision-making. You know, whether you whether you're succeed or failure, Swami often said it's only a matter of karma. When people make money or don't make money, I sort of never quite know what to do with that. But it's just a matter of your karma, that's what will happen. But your relationship to God is a matter of your response to your karma. So you can't help your karma in the sense that if, if you're already on the highway and you're going very fast, you might decide you'd rather be on another highway going at a different speed, and so there's going to be a long cycle of time while you change highways and change speeds, get turned around again, because your karma is forcing you. So you may be on a trajectory of good or bad luck in certain areas, and you may be ready for a change, but it's still going to take time. But how you respond inside yourself, even while all that is happening, that's, that's really, really within our, within our personal decision. Do I trust God or I don't? I mean, yes, you could argue everything is karma, even that. But still, I, saw, I, I, I have seen something in many people's eyes that tells me, just like, if in this moment I just say, okay, God, if this is what you want, then there it is. That's all that's required. The whole, the whole you know, it's sort of like... Well, that's it. <laughs> it's all done. Kundalini shoots to the spiritual eye and you're finished with the, with the game. Make sense? Yeah. 
And that's what I've seen when people come to death with Ananda. Just like everything they just... I, I was reminding a friend of mine, a woman who died quite some time ago, so it's not anyone you would know. It turns out she had, a, she had issues with me that I was completely unaware of. Um, mostly, I think, jealousy of some kind, but I think it was karmic rather than present. So when she was on her deathbed, she phoned me to try to make peace. I, I, mean, I think she had projected onto me a lot more than... I mean, she projected onto me something, because it was, thank you, God. She called and she said something about it. She really always had a lot of trouble with me, and she didn't want to die feeling that way. And thank you, God, I was so clean with her, there was nothing. I said quite spontaneously, oh, but I've always admired you so much. And it was just like, um, it was good that I was able to say that. But I also thought, wow, look at her, she's lying on her deathbed, she's running the laundry list, you know, where is the energy still stuck? And I've really learned that from having taken a number of people through this now. So I just do it now. Where is the lo- where is it still stuck? Who am I still mad at? Who am I still jealous of? Who have I not forgiven? Who, who, who do I have a misunderstanding with? Is it even a real misunderstanding? I mean, her, her surprise at my response tells me, my God, what had she been carrying? I'd known her for quite a long time. And she'd had a whole story going in her head, you know, based on her side of it. Just total fantasy. Where am I stuck? Because you never know. I mean, we could, we could walk out and leave our step into the astral world. If one of those madmen ever really sets off those nuclear bombs, we could all find ourselves in the astral world. Bingo! Just like that. Just like, whoa, party, change of location. <laughs> As Swami said, whether we dribble off over the next century or all go out in one big swoop, he said, once you're in the astral world, it doesn't make any difference at all. <laughs> he was quite casual about it. I mean, not that anybody wants such things to happen. The death is not the issue. It's actually being here afterwards. That's the problem. It's, it would be having to help clean up this planet. That would be the real job. God's in charge. Okay, any other questions here? Other thoughts? So, I think we just, we said that one. Number 271. We're, still, we're all on Kundalini now. The serpent power, as it is called in many books, is the Kundalini. This serpent, the master said, was the one described in the book of Genesis of the Bible. Now, how is anybody supposed to know that, unless you know that? You know, how many centuries have people been reading the Bible? And, and who, you know, wh- who, which theologian has ever said, oh yes, the serpent in the Bible is the kundalini. Okay. That description is meant in an allegorical sense. But if you're a yogi and you know about the kundalini and you know that, that the, it, the, the kundalini has been a snake throughout all of these images, you read the Adam and Eve saga and it's like, oh yeah, there it is. I mean, this is the Kali Yuga separation and the Dwapar Yuga unity. All of a sudden it just makes so much sense. A fundamentalist Christian once insisted to the master that every statement in the Bible should be taken literally and not considered a mere allegory. What about the Garden of Eden, master inquired. We read in the Bible, he continued, that the serpent spoke to Eve. Would you say of that story that it was meant to be taken literally? In those days, the true believer replied, serpents could speak. (laughs) 
What more was there to say? As the master often reminded us, fools argue, wise men discuss. He respected the fundamentalist as a child of God, but how could he respect his obstinacy? Removing his hat and matching gesture to words, he replied ceremoniously, I bow to the colossal temple of ignorance that I behold before me. (laughs) But oh my, can you imagine being master, what fun he had? I mean, but he must have said that. He probably said that in such a loving way that, or else he said it sternly if he wanted the man to listen. But once your mind gets, see, this is just what I was saying at the beginning. Once your mind gets made up, you know every word in the Bible is true and therefore there has to be an explanation and therefore servants could speak. Whatever language, Aramaic or whatever it was that they were speaking to each other at the time. And it's just, and there's no, there's no opening. There's no opening in which to insert something. I mean, this is an impersonal fact. But when we have our own lives and we know how it happened and we know who did what to whom and we know that we did our best and we know we weren't appreciated and we know if so-and-so hadn't done that, then it would have been like this and we know it was like this. Wowie zowie. When you do as much counseling as I've done and you ever believe one person without actually also talking to the other person, you only ever do that once. Because then you think, wow, were they even in the same place? Were they actually married to each other? You know, sometimes like, was that the same marriage? Was that the same meeting? Was that the same job team? Because it, but I, I find it, I saw a picture recently of two devotees. It was, it was a picture from India. One of the devotees was from America and one was uh, an Indian woman. The Indian woman was just, she, and I, I found out later, she's, she's, a, she's an, an interesting character. She had a very interesting energy. And she was all dressed up in a very beautiful, decked out Indian costume. And, and then there was, the American was very austere and very small by comparison. But they were quite harmonious together. And they were both serious devotees. And I just looked at that picture and I thought, why do we ever judge? You know, how could we ever say... Because look at, the, look at the bodies and the energy that these two souls have made. And they're both united in their love for God and in their practice of Kriya. But how could they be more different? And so how could you possibly expect that they would do anything the same? Nor should they do anything the same because it depends on what, the, what knot you're untying. I had somebody sent me... Uh, a Christmas ornament with the string with all this ribbon around the string and I didn't want to cut the string because then I wouldn't be able to hang up the ornament but it, I, I was, this was partly my fever weakened brain over these last days later I thought there was probably a simpler solution but I spent a really long time trying to pull all the threads of ribbon in the right directions but even as I was doing it I kept being impressed by how many different directions the ribbons were coming from and then, when I, then when I saw these two people, I thought, you know, our karma is just not a straight line. It's like it's just, it was necessary for this jiva to incarnate in India in a female body that as it aged, developed in this particular way, and it acquired the sense of aesthetics that was going to make it look this certain way, and then this American person had to be like this, and this austerity, and this uh, complete, you know, just... 
And, there, and how could you say what's right and what's wrong? And, and how could those two individuals ever see any situation the same? They just never could. And, and what's wrong with that? Each one is on their way. Yeah. Well, but of course they were the same in a far more important way. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. But that's the given. It was the, it was the, because I was remembering Swami writing when he first went to Assisi and he meditated in the Portuncula where St. Francis was. And he's, he's, this is, this is a known, well-known quote from him where he talked about how, how he was so overwhelmed by the sweetness of St. Francis. And it was the first time he'd been there. And, uh, and he, he prayed. He said, how is it possible to be so sweet? He said, by seeing, and then the, the, the intuition was, by seeing everyone as your, by never judging, by seeing everyone in the world as your brother and sister in God, but above all, by never judging. And I thought, well, those are, very, those are closely related. Now, you have to understand, that doesn't mean never discriminating, which is to say never perceiving how can I help move the energy forward. It doesn't mean that you become passive. Not at all. But you just, you just recognize, well, it's where this person is standing. How do we move them forward? And there's just no sense of it ought to be different. So, anyway, there was Master. You're looking at that. Any other questions or comments? No. Okay, number 272. Was Moses a master? I asked him one day. Indeed, yes, master replied with assurance. That is what the Bible means in saying that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Wilderness means the meditative silence where no shrubs of human thought grow. Jesus said also, the master continued, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This was not, as the New Testament implies, a reference to the coming crucifixion. I mean, this is a huge difference on the way that that is usually interpreted. So Master says this, the Son of Man being lifted up was not, had, had nothing to do with being lifted up on the cross, as everyone takes that. It was a reference to human beings or sons of man. When Jesus was saying, so, so must the son of man, he was not saying the son of man, I, Jesus. He was saying the son of man, generically, all incarnated physical people. He used son of God, son of man differently. They meant very different things, which many biblical translators don't get. Here, even when he was meaning it personally, but here Master said he wasn't even talking personally that the Son of Man must be lifted up. This was not about the crucifixion. It was a reference to human beings or sons of man. He was saying that to know God, one must raise the kundalini power, which is that the serpent has to be lifted, which locks him in identity with his body and unify it with the spirit centered at the top of the head. So this is everything we've been talking about all along. It's so much fun. I mean, I, I just, I, I get a certain intellectual joy and probably a certain joy out of years and years of being, you know, incarnations of having to sort through all this divisive theology. I mean, this was Master. Master came to show the true teachings of Jesus and how the true teachings of Jesus and the, the original teachings of Jesus and the original teachings of Krishna are the same teaching. 
And, you know, I, I've lived in the atmosphere in which I've lived and breathed that fact for my whole life. And I never knew Jesus. I never knew the New Testament or Jesus at all until after I came to Ananda. So I didn't have to unravel anything. But it's, it, we, we take it so for granted that I forget sometimes what an incredible revolution it is. And I don't just mean the ecumenical movement or something like that. But, but how many, how many hundreds of thousands of people have slaughtered each other over these issues and continue to do so and hate each other and it just goes on and on. It's just lunacy. And here Master is saying, no, this is what Jesus actually meant. Of course, the premise is that Master had the right to speak and the, the man who says that the serpent actually talked to Eve is not going to hear him. But for those who have ears to hear, you know, this just, this just sets up a reality Self-realization is the unifying, will be the unifying reality in Dwapara Yuga. In Autobiography of a Yogi, it says Babaji and Christ are very concerned about what's going on, about this, this uh, rampant materialism, race hatred, uh, religious bigotry, and, you know, the wars between peoples. Babaji and Christ are very concerned about it. So they have a plan. And that plan is that gradually the science of Kriya Yoga will be practiced all over in every nation, and people from their own experience will see the folly of this way of life. And and that's a that's a very big plan. And nobody says there won't be a lot of trouble along the way. Because there may be a lot of trouble along the way, but it's just the necessary karma for, for all of us. I mean all of our souls need the challenge of whatever that might mean. And all of the people who are causing all the grief I find it very helpful to realize, you have to realize that every person, no matter how evil, is equally a child of God. That's what it says in the Festival of Light every week. So let me put that in. You know, all, we're all the same, not only Jesus Christ, Krishna and great masters, but even those on earth who have sinned most greatly. I mean, even those on earth who have sinned most greatly. Jesus Christ, Babaji, and even those who have sinned most greatly. It's just one big line so everybody out there that is easy to criticize is also just chugging along doing their part in God's story and their inner self is no less pristine and precious than the greatest saint. And it, just, it takes the whole thing and just turns it on its head and you, you don't really know where to sit in any sort of normal human thinking because none of it works. You know, you have to elevate yourself into God's plan. That doesn't mean that people are behaving well. That doesn't mean that you don't discriminate. That doesn't mean that you don't even stand up and fight even at different times. You may have to. We may have to. Um, people may have to. Or sacrifice or protest or whatever it might be. But, but it, the perspective of it is so completely different. And why would we be afraid? I can think of lots of reasons. But it all comes down to a lack of faith in God and can all be solved by a deeper inner experience of a higher reality. Okay, yes. Um, I've recently experienced some satisfaction um, by actually praying for the soul of Donald Trump uh, in that, from that very perspective that you're talking about. 
I mean, he is just as pure as you or I or Swami or anybody else. It's just covered with so much crap and he's so damn dangerous because of it. But still, that who he really is, is this pure soul and I think it helps to pray for it. Well, you know, somebody else was talking to me about that recently too and my response was, first of all, person should do what they feel inspired to do. And that you just do what you feel inspired to do. Um, I don't feel I don't feel any responsibility in that direction, and I'm I'm not inclined toward that responsibility. But if a person feels that responsibility, that would be theirs. My inclination is more working, which is this is the way I am. You know, I that I I feel more like all of my energy I want to keep. I, I want I want to take on a challenge that I think I can do. I can meet the challenge. I think I can meet is to to take the light and make it a little higher. No, just just as a real, because I had to think about this, because someone really put this one to me just recently, really strongly. So I had to stop and think. I don't feel I can meet the challenge of really converting a, 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 a very heavy consciousness. I don't feel that I can even penetrate that consciousness. I'm, I'm I really want to say you should do what you feel inspired. Personally, I don't feel I can penetrate that consciousness at all. So I'd rather use my energy where I feel. There's a flow for it, which is just the same answer, which is just to say, I do, I feel, um, you do what you feel inspired. And I know that other people feel inspired to pray for the heaviest souls around and see if they can lift them. Uh, Just to clarify where I'm coming from personally, um, I don't feel a challenge at all. I simply see uh, my mind wandering into uh, all the stuff that's happening on the planet, uh, which is so painful. And uh, I feel a little better if I figured there was something I could do. And uh, so I say, hey, what the heck? I mean, deep in there is... Swami said once you could, you could pray for that guy, uh, Michael, what's his name? Uh, and you could actually play, pray with him and for him, but it was really hard to get there. You know, so in the same sense, this guy is, uh, is a pure soul. I don't think it's even worth... I mean, we can... Okay, yeah, fine. Because no. I don't disagree with you. I just leave it as you do. I was just responding to it because it had come up it had come up in my own life recently and I had to think about an answer also um, and there's another piece though that has to be said which is sometimes when you pray for darkness you get infected by darkness and you have to be careful I mean I'm not I'm, it, it's just something you have to think about uh, sometimes if you even put your mind towards something that either frightens you that is inherently dark um let me just try to think it through. You get pulled down more than you're able to uplift, and you have to be really careful about that. I've told people sometimes they're having a real tough argument with someone or a really bad relationship with someone or someone's really evil toward them. Don't even pray for them. Don't pray for them, because it links you to them, and you don't want to be linked to them. Um, it, it, you're not, you don't have enough strength to be linked to them. It pulls you down rather than lifts them up. And then there's an answer to everything I would say, and you know, but but it, I just felt to say it because I know that other people will see this in another time, and so that is that was the other part. It took me a little while to find it. That was the other part why I it's not a clear cut thing. Oh, just pray for the people who are really heavy and hard because you have to have enough strength to go into that, or even to think about it, and you might think it's going to do good, but it's just as likely to pull, it's, it's, 
the potential to pull you down is also there. I sort of also feel like God knows I want bad people to get better. I don't have to tell him so all the time. You know, he knows my commitment is to serve. And if there's a way I can serve, he'll tell me. And if it, that's why I say, you know, I don't have to always be making sure that I'm covering all the bases. It's more like if, if the essential commitment there is to serve, then he'll tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll just keep doing it. So we can't be responsible for everything. We only have so much time and energy. Yeah. Okay? Fair enough? All right. That's it. For tonight? Oh, wait. I have to say that we started at 268. We finished at 272.